It's the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The reading may be found on page 846 of your Pew Bibles, beginning at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The Gospel of the Lord. Please have a seat. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Liz Gray and I am the rector here and I'm so glad that you're worshipping with us here this evening. We're in a series which we're calling the One Thing series where we're looking at um, the five One Thing verses which are scattered through the scriptures. Last week we looked at one in a psalm. And tonight we've got the story of the rich young ruler, this young man who came to Jesus. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the story, but for a minute I just want you to put yourself in the position of maybe being a bystander and having, watching the scene out, unfold in front of you. Perhaps you're a local businessman or woman or somebody and you were just passing and you caught a glimpse of the story unfolding. I suspect if you had been there that there would have been a number of things that would have piqued your curiosity. When I look at the story, I can think of at least 10 things which might have struck you as distinctly odd. First of all, first of all, you've got this young man and he comes running up to Jesus. Now, from our perspective, later on we're told he's rich. And that's what, if you were local, you might have known that he was rich. Rich people don't run. They just don't. Secondly, he kneels. Doubly odd. Rich people do not kneel especially at the feet of dusty, itinerant preachers. He had a life of privilege and meant that he operated in a very different social group to this teacher. Thirdly, the young man asked what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Distinctly odd. 
Think for a moment about inheritance. Isn't inheritance more about being a son or a daughter and an heir? You technically and normally have to be loved by the person who is dying if you're going to be an heir, or relationally connected in some way. And also, someone has to die for you to inherit anything. What was he thinking? What, was he going, what did he think he was asking? Did he understand what was going on? How do you inherit eternal life? And that's the fourth thing. Surely you can't inherit something so intangible or ephemeral as eternal life. This is a big, unknowable thing. You inherit maybe a house, if you're lucky, or some money, or, or some stuff, a car, a book, um, something small. Fifthly, the response of the teacher was no less strange. First of all, he challenges the good. Well, okay, maybe that's not strange, because any teacher worth his salt at that time would have pushed the attention to God. So Jesus is good, but then this was a hint for this man. Sixthly, Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. But then, to be perfectly honest, he doesn't actually seem to have that good a grasp of them himself. First of all, he misses the first four, and he gets one wrong. He substitutes a new one. I'll talk about that in a moment. Sixthly, no, seventhly, uh, Jesus looks at the man, and it says he loved him. Who loves somebody on their first acquaintance? I mean, if you've never seen someone, how often do you look at them just with love? Odd, distinctly odd. And actually, even within the biblical sense, I mean, Jesus loves me, this I know. I've sung it many times in many languages in this church, but um, in the Bible, it doesn't actually often specifically name individuals whom Jesus loves. It talks about him loving uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and it talks about him loving John, the beloved disciple, but it's kind of unusual for one person to be highlighted. So that's a little unusual. Number eight, Jesus then says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have. What does he mean, you lack one thing, when he's got so much? This man was stinking rich. And as the disciples later point out, that means that he has surely got all of God's blessing. Rich people were clearly beloved of God. So this guy must have been good, because otherwise he wouldn't be so rich. So what could he possibly have lacked? Ninth, okay, if you were a teacher and you wanted someone to follow you, wouldn't you get them to do that before they got rid of their money? I sure would. <laughs> and finally, the guy goes away sad. And if you were local and if you'd been near Jesus, you probably hadn't seen other people leave his presence sad. People didn't tend to leave Jesus sad. They left him happy or healed or well or just something. So perhaps those things would have made you stop in, your, stop in the street and wonder. And then later on, he goes on to talk about camels and needles, and it all gets really odd. But anyway, let's take a moment then and look at who this young man is. Well, first of all, he does seem to have good intentions. He comes, he wants eternal life. That seems to be a good thing to do. He knows Jesus has got the answers. He chose to abase himself at Jesus' feet. That's a good thing. He acknowledged Jesus' position as a respected teacher, as he called Jesus good. But he also, to be honest, slightly flamboyant as he draws attention to how good he is, how he's so great, how he's aced a straight 4.0 in his rule following. I think his mother would have been so proud of him. 
Had he perhaps hoped that Jesus would say, you've done it all, guy. You're great. You're good to go. So what is this problem? Well, let's go back to those commandments which Jesus cited to him. It's interesting, the four that Jesus omitted. He omitted all the ones which really sum up our relationship to God. The four he skipped were the four at the beginning. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All the ones which talk about how we are to relate to God. And then he takes the next six. And five of them he gets right, but he doesn't say the one about coveting. Instead, he substitutes, do not defraud. These are all the, the, the um, commandments about how he was to, people were to relate to the people around them. So why does Jesus substitute defrauding for coveting? Well, I wonder if, as he saw this rich young man, he realized that one of the problems with being young and rich is that your money has come from somewhere, and perhaps this guy already knew quite a lot about inheritance and had inherited all the money, or perhaps he had some venture capital, I don't know. But the danger, the danger for people who are accruing wealth is that they can always get it by defrauding others. So perhaps Jesus' twist on the commandments was something which showed his capacity to be able to use the law somewhat intuitively to address the gaping need in this young man's heart. But even then, he was able to respond, yes, those commandments, all six of them, even your new defrauding one, I have kept all of those from my youth. But then it seems like perhaps Jesus has spotted a little chink in his armor. First of all, Jesus does see that he's keen and he's hungry to succeed. So he allows him the moment of saying, yes, well done. You've worked really hard at doing the right things. But then also, the motivation for getting five to ten right must surely be something to do with our heart of getting one to four right. And so Jesus looks at the young man and finds a way to talk about his relationship with God. Now note, Jesus doesn't necessarily have a problem with wealth per se. He allowed people to keep their houses. He had dinner with rich people. He allowed his feet to be anointed with really expensive oil. He welcomed tax collectors into his entourage. So when Jesus looked at this young man, what did he see? He saw a young man who superficially had it all. And so he starts with what this man does have a lot of, his money. And he says to him, okay, do four things. You've got to go. You've got to liquidate your wealth. And then you've got to find some poor people get to know them, find out what they need, and distribute your wealth, and then come and follow me. Jesus suggests to this young man that he gets rid of all the possessions which are making his life so secure and comfortable and putting himself in a place of complete dependence, but also relationship with Jesus. Kenneth Bailey commenting on this parallel passage in Luke 18, says the two unassailable loyalties that any Middle Easterner is almost required to consider more important than life itself are family and the village home. When Jesus puts both of these on one list and then demands a loyalty that supersedes them both, he is requiring that which is truly impossible to the Middle Easter, given the pressures of his culture. Only with God are such things possible. Giving it to the poor... 
Jesus was asking him to give absolutely everything which he held most dearly and put it aside and engage with the world at a completely different level, to get up really close to places which were hard and painful. The fact that he didn't just say, give it away, but there's this kind of expectation that he would go and find out what the poor people needed and give it to them. The challenge to realign his worldview with that of the poor. And practically, for this man, it would mean so much realignment, not only financial, but also social and political. This man would lose his standing in society, perhaps lose connection with his family, and they would be mad when they saw all their family wealth dispersed. He would lose his voice in the political courts, his influence in the justice system. And Jesus holds out to him that he would find treasure in heaven. He wants his loyalties and priorities to ship to a completely different agenda. And then he says, come, follow me. Come and be in relationship with me. Come and learn how, how to love God by loving me. Jesus doesn't enter a discourse on heaven or even the kingdom of God. He doesn't tell the man the sort of death he should die, but the kind of life he should lead. Storing up treasure in heaven by relinquishing all his barriers, the obstacles, his wealth, his self-centeredness in relationship to God. So far from odd, far from odd, Jesus is welcoming this young man. And I wonder what would have happened to this guy if he had actually done what Jesus suggested. He would have gone, he would have engaged with poor people, he would have gone and followed him, he would have gone and begun to associate with the fishermen and had an itinerant lifestyle. He would have gone into places of discomfort. He would have met people he would have never met any other way. And gradually he would have learned to love Jesus. And by loving Jesus, he would have learned to love his father. He would have learned what it was to be a son of God. And then he would have come to know what it meant to inherit eternal life. But he walked away from the teacher he had called good the teacher whom he had expected to give him an answer, and who did give him an answer. Did this young man ever find out that by following Jesus, he could truly fulfill those first four commandments of loving God first? I so hope he came back. I so hope he recognized that it's important to get our hands dirty sometimes, to be uncomfortable, to make space in our life for walking alongside Jesus, which should always mean that we're walking also alongside the poor, the dispossessed, or the disinherited. So where are your comforts? What are the things that narrow you and keep you inside walls? Jesus highlighted wealth for this young man as an issue, even joking about it, and this whole idea of a camel going through a needle. And Peter begins to worry at the end of this passage about who is going to get eternal life. And Jesus calms him down. It's really not about what you give up specifically. It's relinquishing what there is that's blocking you and God. The fishermen did not have to sell their boats or Martha and Mary their houses, their house, but they had to know when to leave them behind, when to step into the new community which Jesus was offering, a new framework which looked not so much for asceticism per se, but care for the community. Noting also that Jesus slips in this comment about persecution right in the middle of all the rest of it. Not expecting life to be comfortable or easy. We need to be willing to follow where he takes us without fear. To learn to love those he loves. Every week we take a few minutes of silence 
uh, after the homily, to just ask God to shine his light on something which we need to pay attention to. And so perhaps this Lenten week, you could give some thought to this. Are there some acids you could, assets you could liquidate? And I'm not talking necessarily about money. It might be money, but it might be time. It might be your skills. It might be some other kind of resource. Could you perhaps deliberately seek someone out who is needy in some way or who just has, you could improve their lives by walking alongside them? Because if you begin to get into a relationship with somebody as you do that, you will learn from them and you will form a relationship and you will begin to know more about what it means to love God. I'm going to talk a little bit later about all, you know, all the stuff of the coronavirus. And, and I think this is just an amazing opportunity for the church to step up. First, to say we don't live in fear. We don't live in, we don't want to hide. We don't want to just kind of shrink into ourselves. We want to be alert and aware to the people around us very aware that there are many people who are scared, many people who are retreating. So this week, as you think about it, and as you think about who you are and what you have, perhaps you could come to communion asking God who you should learn to love, so that you could love him more as your beloved parent. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me.